everybody, Scott Burnside, back for another edition of Two Man Advantage podcast. Pierre Lebrun. I don't hear any hammering, Pierre, so it must be a uh, relatively quiet day in the construction zone known as the <laughs> Lebrun household in Toronto. And a terrific treat today, a former Selkie Trophy winner, three-time Stanley Cup finalist, a member of the Philadelphia Flyers Hall of Fame, 10-year head coach at Notre Dame, Dave Poulin. Dave, when I was going through that, I was like, I ran out of paper on my notepad to, to do the intro. <laughs> I, you know, that's, you're a big deal. Scott, Pierre, pleasure to join you guys. How can I not love a show called Two Men Advantage for a penalty-killing guy <laughs> that's right up my alley? I'm on the other side of the Two Men Advantage. It's great. <laughs> In, in in fact, we've talked about this uh, over the years uh, that we work together at TSN now, uh, Dave, that uh, one of your favorite goals that you scored in your career was down two men, right? It's the goal I get asked about the most. In, in Specifically, you know, when I'm back in Philadelphia, and it's one of those goals that, you know, 40,000 people were in a 20,000-seat arena to see. And, <laughs> you know, I think it was... The circumstance involved, it was game six of the conference finals, and it was that super young team in 84-85 with the Flyers, Mike Keenan's first year. And and when I look at the roster of that team and I see 19 years old, 19 years old, 20 years old, 20 years old, 20 years old, and think of the young Derek Smiths, Peter Zezels, Rick Tockets, Ron Sutter, Murray Craven, and it was such a young group, and we had upset the Islanders in the, in the second round, which was the tail end of their great cup run. And so now it was the Nordiques in the conference finals. And that goal came in game six and really vaulted us into the finals for the first time. So it had special meaning, you know, for a lot of reasons. And it has a funny post story to it because one of the players on the ice for the Nordiques, we were up one, nothing in the second period and they had a two men advantage up three to two in the series we were. And so, you know, a real momentum swinger, but one of the players on the ice and the player that made the pass was Peter Stasny and mm. the great Peter Stasny. And years later, I recruited his son, Jan, who played for me for four years at Notre Dame. And so it was quite <laughs> funny at some point in the recruiting process, I might've been sitting in my office <laughs> when Peter brought it up that it wasn't a moment that he was that fond of in his career. Um, but he ended up, Jan ended up being a great player for me at Notre Dame. So cool. So Pierre and I, every week now we, and we've had, you know, people on who, you know, we have Wayne Gretzky a couple of weeks and we've talked about some of the games that have, you know, are circulating now because of the, the pause and pause and everything. Um, and, uh, so I, I'm, Pierre was telling me, he said, oh yeah, I've, uh, seen, I've been watching Dave regularly because, you know, as mentioned, three trips to the Stanley Cup Finals, and so these games periodically make their way onto screens in what seems to be a, a, a you know, sort of kind of a tape loop as we work our way through this. Do you, do you, do you watch them, Dave? Like, do you make a point if you know they're going to air on Sportsnet, or if you're, if you happen to be able to pick up a, a feed uh, from the states, do you watch them, or have you happened to buy your TV and go, whoa, wait a minute, I know that guy, or what's that been like for you? I haven't watched them in their entirety. I've watched a little bit of game one of the 87 cup finals. 
but they've been showing a lot of them in Boston, the Nesson stations have, and a lot of the old Flyers games, just regular season games. But this final series that they're showing now in 87, a lot of people consider one of the great final series. It was the number one and two teams in the league and obviously mm-hmm. the great Edmonton Oilers and the skill they had. And in the part of the game one that I watched, I actually thought it was pretty fast. And, you know, in today's game, everybody talks about the speed of the game and how it's that way faster than it was and way different than it was. And, and certainly the rules transgressions were clear, the hooking, holding, slashing, everything else that went on. But I really thought it was pretty fast. And I was surprised by the pace of it. And it was a, a little bit of a painful memory for me because I had broken three ribs earlier in the playoffs. So at that point, I was basically a shell of, of a person and of a player and, you know, and, and getting my ribs frozen each night to play. And so it was, it was a little bit painful to think back to watch, not only because of the outcome, but because of the pain that went into it. Yeah. And, and the assignments that you always drew, Dave, over the years, I mean, obviously in that series, you know, you either got uh, Gretzky or Messier either way. And, uh, and I, I texted you the other night, I was watching either game one or game two of that 87 cup final. I, I'd forgotten how fast it was too, Dave. And I watched it obviously at the time in real time on the tube, but I was a teenager but I, 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 for, there's two texts I sent that night. I sent you a text because I couldn't believe how often Paul Coffey somehow, even though everyone knew who he was, has the ability to just show up on the rush at the back end and, and you know, create offense. I, I just, I don't know how you defend that. And the other one, I sent a text to Ron Hextall and I said, I, I know you won the Conn Smythe, but I've forgotten how unbelievable you were in that series. He really was. He was tremendous. He might have been better against Montreal in the six-game series preceding that. And, you know, as as great as he was in the finals, and Gretzky called it the greatest goaltending exhibition that he had seen. And, you know, the confidence we had, and that was a really strange year for Hex because he had been in the American League the preceding year and had actually gone to the American Hockey League finals, the Calder Cup finals, and you know, had a magnificent year in his first full year in the American League, but that was the year Pelly Lindbergh was killed. And they had made a decision not to bring Hextall up in November of the preceding year to leave him in the minors and continue to develop him. And so we played that entire year and actually won the Jennings Award with Bob Frozen and Darren Jensen. And so it was a surprise the first game. I remember skating around the ice at the Spectrum opening night in 87, and saying something to Frozy, and Bobby Frozy, he just kind of looked at me, he goes, I'm not in tonight. I said, you're not in tonight. He said, no, Hextall's playing. And I was shocked as a player. That was in the morning skate. Hmm. And so I don't think any of us understood what management's plans were for Hex or how he was going to answer those plans. But he was absolutely magnificent during that series and, and gave us a chance to win every single night. And and then you think about coffee, and I sent you a note back, Pierre, because coffee always went up his backhand side of the ice. So left shot always went up the right-hand boards. And it was Bob right. Johnson in Calgary when they had their battles through the mid-'80s that really worked on the left-wing lock. And the left-wing lock is a little bit of a misnomer because Montreal Canadians played a version of that through their great cup right. years. Originally, you're right. Originally, right. but he perfected it. And the reason being, he wanted a forward back on that side to dissuade coffee from going up that side of the ice. So the whole 
success to Calgary beating Edmonton uh, in 86 was that was that they kept they felt they kept coffee away from the side of the ice that he preferred. But in terms of a, a one step skater, if you were beside him, you weren't beside him. His first right. step was so explosive and so effortless. Maybe that's what amazed us the most is when I was going fast, you knew I was going fast because I was using every, <laughs> every part of my body to get every, you know, it was sort of a unique skating style. But Koff was so smooth and he just glided. He was just a spectacular, spectacular skater. And as for my matchups, you know, you think of a perfect relationship with Messier and Gretzky where you're Mark Messier and you don't see, literally see a checking line on the road for the first eight years of your career <laughs> because the other team is checking Gretz. And, you know, and, and, and if you get your matchups at home, then you get Gretz away from the checking line, then Messier might see a checking line at home. But, uh, you know, you get to play with a Hall of Famer in Glenn Anderson and you don't see a checking line for eight years. It's a pretty good gig. Uh, oh, man, they, they were so loaded. And you guys did a re- really good job on them in that in that final. And it, even though you guys were second in the league, if memory serves correct, I thought the narrative was still, Dave, wow, you guys pushed the Mighty Oilers to seven. You know, because it just... Because that might have been the apex of that Oilers juggernaut, I think. I think it probably was. It was the final year with Andy Moe, because he then left and joined the Olympic team in 88 to free himself up from Grant Fuhrer. So from a depth mm-hmm. standpoint, Steve Smith was on the scene and and becoming a real factor. And, and probably, you know, as much as their careers peaked and stayed at a peak for a long time, I think in terms of hitting on all cylinders, that probably was their best team. I would have loved to have had a healthy Tim Kerr during that series. Timmy didn't play at all. Mm, And, you know, that was one of the years that he was pumping in the power play goals. I don't know if that was his record year, but he had 34, 36 power play goals, which is still the NHL record today. Mm -hmm. And he was such a significant, significant player. And when you lose a player like that, we didn't have him at all. I would have loved to have played that team healthy. But the other thing about those Edmonton teams, guys, and I thought it was brilliant management and probably doesn't get as much credit as it should have in Glenn Sather changing out the third and fourth lines on those teams. And he kept his core together, certainly, but even, you know, not even third and fourth, bringing in a Kent Nielsen, you know, to mm-hmm. play on the top two lines. But that was by design. And he didn't want the bottom half of his lineup to get complacent, one, but two, he wanted the top half of his lineup to be excited for someone winning their first cup. And so if you look at the roster names that went through those years, whether it be a Keith Acton or a Ken Lindsman or whomever, you know, he would bring in and everybody get all wound up and excited to try and win the first cup for that person. And, and because they knew what it was like to experience it and how enjoyable it was and what a thrill it was, they wanted to share that they had to go out and win the cup again to do that. And I thought it was brilliant management on Glenn Sather's part. Uh, Dave, I want to, at some point, transition to the here and now, get your takes on on return to play and all those kinds of things. But one of the things Pierre and I have talked about since the pause, and we've talked uh, you know, about some of our favorite moments in hockey and, and a lot of the international competition. And I, 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 this is one that sometimes escapes my memory, but probably doesn't get the... The, the notoriety that it deserves uh, was the Rendezvous 87 
uh, event, two games between NHL All-Stars and, and the Russian national team or Russian All-Star team. Um, and, of course, you took part in that, if I'm not mistaken, scored the game-winning goal in the one game won by the NHL All-Stars. But I was looking at the roster. In fact, I have it up in front of me. Um, and it is it's unbelievable. And I wonder if, if when you think of, uh, you know, sort of the you know, the, the the many best on best or international events that have happened over the years. Do you, where, does it, where does this fit for you and what was it like to take part in it? Yeah, that was really special, Scotty. You know, going into that, when that was announced that that was going to be the format for the All-Star, you basically booked the week off. I mean, there's no way you were going to make that team. <laughs> there's no way. And you think about it, any nationality from the NHL, are you kidding me? And at some point, you know, I had played in the All-Star game the year before in 86, and, and I was a, a really good, you know, sort of a combo center. I was playing more of an offensive role at that point in my career, but, you know, I had good defensive abilities. And in the building of that team, they made a decision to build a line to try and play against the KLM line. So Krutov, Larionov, Makarov. Mm -hmm. Fetisov and Kasatanov. And if I'm correct, guys, at that point, they had been together since I think four of them are the same age and Larionov is younger. And they had been together since they were like 10 years old or 12 years old, all the oh, way they, through the Russian It was unbelievable. Yeah. So a couple of things stood out. One, they said, you know, well, first of all, making the team, getting that call to say I'd be a part of that team was, it just floored me. Like, there was no way you were going to make that team. And then when you saw what they did, they moved me to left wing. They had Kevin Deneen on the right side. And they put Dale, Dale Howarchuk in the middle. Now, Dale Howarchuk, guys, I, I always, always make it a point to give him more praise than I think he even gets as a great Hall of Famer. He was maybe the most underrated player in the NHL. Now, does that sound crazy for a player of that stature? But he was still underrated because of Gretzky and right. Lemieux and Messier and, and that group. And, and playing in the Smythe division at the time didn't do many favors either, I would, I would argue. Exactly, because you never saw him deep in the playoffs because they couldn't get past Edmonton. Mm -hmm. But the reason they put Dale there and they explained it to us was for puck possession. They said, you know, and they kind of joked about it. They said, if you actually do touch the puck, you're going to have to keep it. And Dale's the guy that's going to keep it. And, and boy, he was a phenomenal possession guy. And in the first game, we actually had two of the four goals. We had a goal in this, I think I had a goal in the system that, and Deneen and Howarchuk were just terrific. And to their point, management's point, when we got the puck, Dale was able to maintain control of it. And, you know, it was just special. And then it was actually on a line change late in the game that I was on the ice with Mario and deflected a Mario shot in from just inside the blue line, defect, deflected it in for the winning goal. But it, it was really a, a fun time. And so you walk into a locker room, and it's the first time you're in the locker room with the Western guys. And I was sitting beside Doug Wilson, the great Chicago Blackhawk defenseman. And he said to me, so you've never been in a locker room with Gretz and Mess, eh? And I said, nope. He said, watch this dynamic. This is, this. is You're going to enjoy this. <laughs> And he said, watch Mess run the locker room. And sure enough, and it was pretty clear. I mean, you know, Gretz was pretty quiet and, and Messi was running the show. And But Gretzky right. did say something that I thought was interesting before the first game. He said, guys, if 
if we win this, we're going to go down as one of the great teams in history, one of the great teams put together for an event because it was so unprecedented that, you know, you could have any nationality on the team. And I thought, what an interesting way for him to get up for the series. I mean, you know, he doesn't need the series for his own credibility. He is the greatest player in the game. And yet he was finding a way. And I think about that when I think about Michael Jordan now and watching this last dance, Gretz was finding a way to get himself up and say, you know, this is going to be one of the great teams put together if we're to win this. And after the first period of game two, and I got a little nudge from Dougie Wilson, you know, who maybe knew this was coming. We were down maybe three, nothing. And that was the coming out party for Valerie Kaminsky in that game. And who would end up playing and where the Ronnie Woody seven was in Quebec city. Right? Exactly. Reserves, correct? And I think right. he had a hat trick in that game. So we had done a good job again of shutting down that KLM line, but Kaminsky, you know, who nobody really knew about. And, and I think we were down, you know, this thing's blur, but I think we were down three, nothing after the first. And Gretzky came in and sat down and started to take his skates off and Messier came right over to him and got right in his face. And this is when Dougie Wilson was nudging me and he was saying, watch this, watch this, watch this. <laughs> and Mess is saying, hey, need a little magic here, Gretz. Need a little magic. Need a little magic, Gretz. He was right in his face. And I can remember everybody else was sliding back in their seat thinking, holy smokes, this is great. You know, a superstar challenging a superstar. This is the best. Well, and Wayne, when he was on our podcast a couple of weeks ago, Dave was talking about how you know, going head to head against Messi in practice every day was phenomenal for him. Like they, they went after each other. They, they pushed each other and, and, uh, you know, it, it came up because he was talking about, you know, the dynamic between Leon Dreisaitl and Connor McDavid now in the Oilers. But, but that, that, that peer pressure within your own room, right? Like that could be such a healthy thing. Absolutely. I mean, tremendously healthy. And, you know, I think of the way we practice with the Flyers, it was very similar, whether it was Ronnie Sutter and I or, you know, or Murray Craven or the way Rick Tockett practiced. It was a big part of the makeup. And it's just very different today, Pierre. When you go in, first of all, practices are, you know, 31 minutes long or 27 minutes long or whatever sports science has decided they are. And, <laughs> I was going to say. And they're, they're just totally different, totally, totally different. And, you know, we competed for our spots much more in practice and, to have the makeup of that locker room in Edmonton and the fact that they did practice every day and push each other every day speaks to their greatness. I'm curious, Dave, when you, I mean, you've done a lot of different things in your hockey career, but obviously, you know, being part of the Flyers Hall of Fame, do you watch that team more closely than other teams? Listen, you were part of the management team in Toronto with the Leafs. You're a national guy with TSN, but is there something about the Flyers that, draws you back there do you watch that team a little bit more closely or is it are you sort of beyond that now i think i'm beyond that scotty when i'm there certainly you know a couple years ago when they had the 50th anniversary of expansion they brought us back i think i went back seven or eight times during the year and they had captain's night and playoff heroes night and you know all these different nights the 87 team came back one night and and so you were back so often that you did become immersed in it. And I do have a daughter living in Philadelphia and she and her husband go to a number of the games and they wear Flyers jerseys. And so I'm a little bit more, I, I'd say back into it now, but you know, my last game there was 1990, 1989, 1990, January of 1990. And that's a long time. And I, I think I will 
always be known as a flyer and I will always be a Philadelphia flyer. And that part doesn't change. But in terms of watching them differently, I don't think I watch them differently or really any closer than I do anybody else. You know, the game is the team I see the most right now are the Montreal Canadiens. That's the single team I do the most games for. Toronto's a close second. Ottawa's in that mix as well. Um, but I really don't think, you know, a, a little bit more connected to people. Probably I was a little more connected when Hextall was the GM there than I am right at this present moment. I'm curious, Dave, what, uh, if you put on your Notre Dame hat in terms of all the logistical details that you had to attend to during your time at Notre Dame uh, in terms of management and, of course, your time in the leash front office, you sit back now and you look at what the return to play committee, the NHL and NHLPA committee, is now trying to work through in, in trying to salvage this NHL season. Uh, what are some of your thoughts on, on the obstacles there and, and the, you know, the, really the task at hand? Just amazing logistics, Pierre, amazing logistics in, in all the different, you know, um, aspects of it and contractually player wise, first of all, you're taking your all direct, all your directors from outside the game. You know, when I was in management, you, you were taking your directives from in, within the game. And now the first directive you're taking is health, and that's from outside the game and government. And so the very first item is totally out of your control. And now move it into your control and think, what do we control? And, and the logistics of putting it together. And when you talk about, you know, potentially going to four sites to finish the season, that sounds fine and good. You'd have a site for each division, but what about the interdivisional games or the interconference games that are left? How do you handle those? Because, you know, it's fine to say, well, you know, you're going to put a, a Metro division site together, but what if the Metro division has some games left against the central and they have a game left against Winnipeg or whatever that may be. Um, I think the logistics of the actual, putting on the games they can master pretty quickly i mean you watch when they go into a granted with more lead time but they go into a totally non-conventional hockey facility like the notre dame football stadium and put an event like they did on a couple of years ago when the winter classic was at notre dame and i was there it's absolutely amazing the league's capabilities of taking a building and making it a hockey building um, the facilities i don't think will be an issue uh, the TV production part won't be an issue. Those guys will thrive at that. You know, the, the, the good producers tell me, give me 11 or 12 cameras and we'll be great not to worry about it. And, you know, I think it, it's all the logistics around it in terms of hotels and, you know, where this pandemic is from a testing standpoint at that point. And, and I do think that when it starts up, regardless of when it does, you'll be in in, you won't be in full buildings. You'll be in some limited capacity buildings, whether it be totally without fans or in some limited basis. But boy, oh boy, you know, just in, in things like putting the rookie tournament together, which we ran for five years in either Kitchener or London, having four teams come in, you know, all the different logistics of practice times and that stuff will all be worked out. The hockey stuff is the easy stuff. It's all the stuff outside the game that's going to be the challenge. And, and it's a huge, huge challenge. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's the stuff that's outside the league's 
normal expertise is what it is. Exactly. Yeah. Do you, right. Dave, do you like the, like, I think we, we understand the, you know, why it's important for the league and the players if there's a way to complete the regular season. I mean, there's lots of logistical issues on, you know, how you alter the schedule, but the idea of getting teams to 82 games or, or whatever number they decide on. But certainly there have been some players both quietly and, and, and not so quietly talked about the, you know, the motivation to come back and play five or six or 10 games, depending on what the final number is. If you're Detroit or Ottawa or Jersey, um, go through that list. Do you think in terms of the quality of play, I mean, do you, is there a balance to playing the rest of the regular season games to the, for the finance and also to get players back into game shape as opposed to jumping into some sort of expanded playoff format? Do you have a sense what might work better or do you, if one that appeals more or less to you? Ideally it would be to finish the regular season realistically I think it makes more sense to go right to the playoffs and it may be a slightly expanded group that starts with a one-off, you know, to compete, to get in the playoffs with that, you know, it seems either 20 or 24, there are cutoff points at those two areas that would say, okay, we're fine at this exact area. We're fine at 20 or 24 and then playing to get down to 16 first round shortened three out of five, potentially the second round shortened to three out of five. I could see scenarios like that. I think logistics of finishing the regular season are going to be really, really tough. And, you know, I just do. And, you know, I, I planted a seed originally about some sort of little playoff series with the teams that didn't make the playoff to see who got the number one pick in the draft. And that intrigued me to think of the, you know, you'd benefit the Ottawa's or Detroit's that are right at the bottom with home ice and then have single games, you know, single game elimination to see who, you know, got the right to draft number one, that, that would probably create a great deal of interest. But in terms of trying to get to exactly 82 with everybody, I think it's going to be really, that could be a bigger challenge than, than it is to say, okay, you know, someone is going to lose out on this clearly, but we're going, whether it's point percentage or points, that we're going to go right into the playoffs in a shortened first and second round. And, and it is going to be what it is. And I would envision, as is happening now in Sweden, that the ramp up originally would be where whatever city you live in, you know, whoever's here in Toronto right now skates as a group, smaller groups to start with, you know, four or six or eight and work up to larger groups. And then you go to your respective home cities for a shortened training camp, having already been on the ice for a week or two, albeit with different, you know, players in the league. Yeah, I, I think that... I think the motivation for the non-playoff teams to come back four months later, if it's July resumption and play 10 regular season games is difficult. Not all though. I mean, I think that, I think it depends on the team to me, Dave. Like I think if you're Detroit and Ottawa, I think they're, they're, they're on board for it because I think they continue the evaluation of the young guys. So it's 10 games that, that just adds to the process. I think it's harder for the non-playoff teams or veteran teams who literally have nothing to play for. Like if you're, San Jose, Anaheim, uh, Montreal, those teams, like, uncle, let's just focus on next year. Let's be honest. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with that, Pierre. That would be really tough for for some of those teams. But if you do take a team like Ottawa, 
you know, if given the choice right now, you can picture that Brady Kachuk is out on a pond somewhere playing hockey, regardless of what the rules are, or, right. you know, what he has to do. And so I would, I would think, I, I would agree with that, depending on what sort of curve or what part of the evolution of your team is at, that some of the youngest ones may benefit in that scenario. Uh, Dave, we're going to let you go in, in just a moment, but you mentioned the uh, um, the Michael Jordan documentary, all kinds of praise and certainly lots of attention on that. Did you find yourself watching it with a, a little closer eye or what was, because you, you, there may be, there may have been a reason for you to be watching it a little bit more closely. Yeah, very much so. I, I spent uh, a portion of each summer in Chicago, first off, you know, and Notre Dame is very closely associated city with Chicago. But John Paxson, the great shooting guard for the Bulls, lived in my section in the dorm. And and actually, on the first Michael Jordan teams, the number four overall pick was a guy named Orlando Woolrich from Notre Dame. And, and then Joe Klein later. So there were actually three different kids that I was at Notre Dame with or there when he was coaching that were on those teams. But I knew Paxson well and had an opportunity one day. I was in Boston literally just strolling out of a hotel one day in the fall of 90 and Pax was walking out the other way. And of course, you know, we had lived in the same section of the same dormitory for a couple of years at Notre Dame. And, and I had lived with a player my freshman year, Mike Mitchells, who was also a shooting guard. So I was pretty closely attached to that team and, you know, just saw Pax cruising out and said, Hey Pax, how you doing? It's like, Hey Pooley, how are you? Great. Well, of course he's walking with Michael Jordan to go get on the team bus. So, I had an opportunity to say hi to Michael and Michael proceeded to go out the next night and beat the Celtics and uh, put up 40 or whatever he put up that night. And, but it is, you, you watch it differently when you know someone personally and, and um, Paxson was a great shooter, but I, I'm just, you know, through the, I guess it was the fourth one where he became the focal point for a specific game to win a championship where, right. He was, he was getting where Phil Jackson was said, giving yeah, him the ball. Yeah, yes. You're going to shoot the ball. <laughs> And, uh, and, and I'll tell you, I played in pickup games with seven, eight guys who went on to play in the NBA and, and guys, I wouldn't touch the ball for an hour and a half. Like unless it hit the rim and came straight to me was the only way I was touching the ball. I'm waiting for my first pass and they let the hockey guy foul. I was allowed to foul whenever I wanted to, whoever I wanted to. So, uh, I just considered it a workout, but it's, it's been really fun to watch and the dynamics between coaches and players and and just thinking of what it would be like to play with a Michael Jordan. I played with some great players, guys, but you think of the guys that lined up beside him on an every night basis and, and just the drive and determination. And believe me, it wasn't comfortable because he was going to push you to the absolute max and, and it made him special, but it's been a really, really fun series to watch. Well, I should mention as, uh, as we let you go here, Dave, and I feel like we can go on for like five hours, but, uh, I, we sh- I should let the world know that the last meal that I've had outside of my house before the pandemic uh, was with Dave Pullen and Francois Gagnon of RDS at Burns Steakhouse in Tampa. That's the last time I was outside of my it's house. It's a pretty good meal, memory, so. though, isn't it? <laughs> it? It's a good way. It was a good way to shut her down. Is, going uh, down is, go down, Pierre. Holy smokes. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the best NHL meals. Uh, so many NHL teams end up eating there the night before games. And uh, that was a fun night. But I, did, I didn't realize it was going to be the last restaurant meal in a while. No I mean, kidding. obviously, uh, take out galore here at the LeBron household in terms of 
ordering food, but if you could order takeout from Burns, <laughs> so, you'd probably just, do it. <laughs> if it was an option, I would. So, Dave, who ordered? Who who did you guys wrestle over the wine list? Because that's a, I mean, that's an epic wine place. Who was there? Total non-wine drinker here. Yes. Oh, okay. much See, to I Pierre's chagrin. Yeah. Oh, Total well, non-wine but, drinker. So I let Pierre and Francois enjoy their wine. But I think I think Dave, you you kept looking over at me and, and look at the expression on my face as I enjoyed the, the bottle that <laughs> Pure I ordered. Joy. Yes. Pure joy. I know I'm missing out on something. <laughs> uh, good stuff. Well, Dave, thank you for hanging out with us. It, uh, I feel smarter than I did when we began. And that's, uh, well, lots of days that happens to me. But uh, it's, a, it's a good day that it happened today. So thanks for coming to hang out with us. Great chat, gentlemen. And let's all hope to see each other in a hockey arena soon. For sure. Uh, I look forward to that. Thanks, Dave. All Here's the best, man. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Thanks, guys. Pierre? That was a that was a ton of fun. I, I you know I always enjoy chatting with Dave, whether we run into each other on the road or whatever it is. But I, he, to me, he's turned into an absolutely terrific broadcaster, and I didn't want to embarrass him by suggesting that while he was actually talking to us. But I, I just think he his work is is impeccable, mm-hmm. and when you listen to him. And you know the experiences that he's had, you know, not just playing and, and playing at an exceptionally high level, but, you know, working in management, coaching at Notre Dame. And, like, he's – he really does a great job. What's it like for you to – because you, you guys don't really cross paths on the air a lot, do you? So we cross paths. Uh, we, we'll do radio hits together, uh, whether it's Leafs Lunch or, or what have you on TSN Radio. And we also will – the odd time be on the same panel with Gino Retta for that's hockey for, oh, okay. on Gino's show. And I, I really enjoy that because of course, when you're doing that show with Gino and there's always two guests, you know, the two guests have to kind of put their brains together and make sure they're not making the same point or, or that they're, you know, sort of, you know, we're, we're tackling the issues together. And it's just such a joy to work with Dave because he's such a cerebral guy and, yeah. and, and it's just so, so easy to sort of feed off what he has to say anyway. But the reason I loved having him on uh, on our podcast here this week is that, you know, I'm always in a rush when I'm at TSN and I see him, right? We're in the green room and getting ready for insider trading or I'm getting ready for that. And I always find my mind racing. And one thing that, that I love that we did on this show that I don't do enough of is whenever I'm with Dave at TSN, it's about the here and now. You know, what's going on with the Habs today? What's going on with the Leafs? We, we almost never dip back into his, his amazing playing career and dip into those great stories. And that's why I wanted to get into that today uh, because the guy had an amazing career and, and was sort of, you know, a player that you would appreciate even more today yeah, exactly. than, than I think then because of uh, his 200-foot game and, and, his, and the intelligence that he played with. You know, it's a, that's a must for today's top center. And, and I think at the time... You know, guys like him and Guy Carbonell were more rare on NHL rosters. So, yeah, um, yeah just just a treat to hear from Dave again today. Yeah, good call, good call by you. Um, all right, let's uh, let's talk a little. Uh, you know, every week now, there's uh, as we as we ponder what may or may not happen down the road. Uh, always seems to be some news that that pops up, and uh, I think I. I don't know how you felt about it, but I certainly, like a lot of people, was absolutely shocked with the announcement that the Blackhawks had moved on from President John McDonough. And um, 
I remember sitting down with John McDonough not long after he'd come over from the Chicago Cubs to take over uh, as president of the Blackhawks. And, you know, the story is well known, of course, that, uh, you know, with Rocky Wirtz taking over after his father passed and, and the, the dramatic changes both on and off the ice for that franchise. Um, you know, John McDonough was a huge part of that and uh, very interesting, strong personality and, and really deserves a ton of credit for the renaissance of that team in that marketplace but uh time has run its course for john mcdonough and i think now it's a lot of it's interesting to see what rocky Wirtz, what the plans are for that position moving forward does it shade more to i'm using my air quotes here a hockey guy as a team president do we see somebody you know like a brendan shanahan or a John Davidson or, you know, any of the other sort of presidents or president of hockey ops. Um, what would you make of the whole um, upheaval in Chicago this week? Yeah. Yeah, I certainly didn't see that coming. Although I, I, I did wonder if the team continued to miss out on the playoffs, uh, how that would play out for, you know, different people in the, in the organization. Even though I, you know, we've talked about this before. I, I like the moves that Stan Bowman, the GM, I know you're talking about John McDonough, but I like the moves that Stan Bowman has made over the last few years to try and tweak that aging roster into a younger one while not having a full rebuild. You know what I mean? Like there've been a lot of good little side trades that I feel have been won by him, but it's, you know, clearly not been enough yet. And at some point, you know, the standards that are now set there are, are, are someone's going to pay the price and John McDonough did. You know, you ask if, you know, I think a lot of Chicago media are asking the same question. You know, did you replace John McDonough with a hockey, a hockey centric president as opposed to a business guy like he, he was like he was. And I, I have to say, and I, I, I wonder why you have to choose. You know, I know a lot of it is about money and what presidents make in sports. But if you're trying to be the best organization in any sport, why wouldn't you have both? Like, why wouldn't you have a president of hockey and then a president of business and try to fill the circle? Um, again, I understand that means extra coin, but if I was the Blackhawks, I wouldn't try to replace John McDonough with one person. I'd try to replace him with two people and each with their specific strengths. Um, and it's interesting. I was w- w- reading the list of candidates that uh, Scott Powers and Mark Lazarus are athletic Chicago colleagues put together and the name that jumped out at me, I don't know about you, was Mike Gillis. And and the reason for that is I think that in the conversations that Mike Gillis has had with teams since he left Vancouver, I think the point has been made that he would be better suited to come back as a president one day, overseeing more of an, the overarching operation as opposed to a GM. And I think that's where his strengths would be too. I really think he's one of the more forward-thinking hockey guys that I've met over the years I think misunderstood I think sometimes the way he comes across he's his own worst enemy too um but but he's a guy like if Chicago is you know wants to sort of think outside the box and 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 move the program he'd be a guy I would bring in to to talk to I know the Devils uh have talked to Mike Gillis according to my sources of course we know the Devils uh, still have Tom Fitzgerald in his interim GM. I actually think Tom Fitzgerald deserves to get the full-time gig there as GM. But again, 
if I was in New Jersey, if I'm looking at a guy like Mike Gillis, I would look at him as, as more in the president of hockey role. I don't know that that's what the Devils are going to be interested in at the end of the day. But again, that's, you know, you ask me, hire a hockey guy or a business guy. I think every team in the league, if they could afford it, should have both, all their bases covered. It's and it's it's interesting because there, when you look around the NHL, there you know there are different models and you know Brendan Shanahan in Toronto, obviously you know he's a he's a hockey guy, he's a Hall of Famer, but he's also you know he's he's well versed on the business side of it. Uh, to me, you know one of the guys that all you know when I think of the best of both worlds, I think of Luke Robitaille in L.A. and the work he's done you know, building that franchise and the brand and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, but he's, he's a hall of fame player as well. Right. So you're right. You, you know, and it, it's all, and it's always going to be about, you know, the relationships within the organization. And so, you know, if, you know, if it was a Mike Gillis, for instance, coming into Chicago and um, you know, what's, what's his relationship like with Stan Bowman and the, the rest of the hockey ops group. I mean, that's, you know, finding that right fit is key, but it, it is, it is fascinating to watch how different teams, when these positions come open and they don't come open all that often, how they respond and how, what they want the dynamic to look like, like with that team. Like to me with, you know, John Davidson's been, you know, has his history, you know, whether, uh, you know, the various franchises he was with, it just seemed natural for him to to be doing what he's doing now with the New York Rangers after Glenn Sather moved on from his position there. But it it has it's about fit and it's about relationship, as I think, in, in terms of whether it works or not. Yeah, no question. And, you know, I think teams are going to look at this so closely about how to build and and, and rebuild teams it's not been easy for Chicago and LA who were, you know, I think you would agree the two most dominant franchises for, you know, a good decade in the, you know, the Hawks to me, the number one franchise, three cups in six years, which is almost unheard of in the cap era, but LA, you know, two cups in four years and other deep runs, uh, you know, Pittsburgh in the East has been that team for a good dozen years, but uh, Washington uh, as well, and there's some great lessons, uh, do's and don'ts. And the reality is, if you're looking at those four franchises, you know, I know Washington's only won one cup, but I'm going to include them in there because they're always in there. The, the, you know, the Caps and the Penguins certainly have done a pretty impressive job of reinventing themselves. Again, around the same superstars. Yes, I get that. But it's been harder for L.A. and Chicago to do. And again, I like I said, I really like some of the trades Stan Bowman has made over the last couple of years to try and find that path. But uh, L.A. and Chicago have just had a tougher part of getting back to the promised land, uh, you know, compared to what's happened in Pittsburgh and Washington. Yeah. Uh, all right. What so? What else? You got uh, closing closing thoughts? You got anything on your mind? You uh, you know how how you feeling? How how are things? As you know, I'm I'm. I always look forward to uh, our taping days because it's uh, you know it's 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 easy to feel isolated. Yes, in one word, but a little bit you know like a little disenfranchised. So I this is a good touchstone for me every week. uh, You know, (laughs) having people come and join us. How you doing? Yeah, I'm good, man. I'm good. Listen, it's uh, as we've said before. You know, I have the easy 
we have easy roles in this thing. Uh, we're, we're not uh, we're not risking our lives like so many of these courageous people out there trying to get this this damn virus down to its knees. And um, you know, it's uh, how pro sports come out of this is, is going to be so interesting to me because I think every week we think of new ideas and and new issues and new solutions as to how sports is going to come out of this. And sports will. And fans will need them and want them, but sports has to wait its turn. It's not the most important thing right now. Um, and, and so again, you know, the reporting I done here this week about the NHL talking about a perhaps not returning for next season until December. You know, that's a realistic approach, I think, right? That 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 you probably don't want to drop the puck for 2021 until you can have fans in the building, and who knows when that will be. Mm-hmm. And you know, I just think that's reality because. It's a gate-driven league. Yeah. It, it, I mean, your point is a good one because you do have to, part of going through this is having to resolve that things, like when you think of, okay, well, they're going to get back to play, that it's not going to be, and it may never be the same, but it's certainly not going to be what you and I, you know, like every year for the last, yeah, for many, many years, this time of year, you and I have been crisscrossing North America and you know, immersing ourselves in playoff narratives and all those kinds of things. Um, it, it is about getting your head around the fact that you're, we're going to have to move on from that. <laughs> and we're going to have to think about things that we probably never thought of before. And as you, you point out so accurately, anyway, listen, we're at the we're a very tiny cog in this wheel and lots of people doing lots more important stuff. But it is it is about a collective shift of uh, of the mindset and that's it's a bit uncomfortable but it's also you know it's it, it's kind of cool to to maybe embrace that well said my friend I, i'm telling you one of, one of these weeks we need to uh we need to tape this podcast while we're having a couple of bevies what uh think? just okay let's do it <laughs> was that no i'm not <laughs> saying i want to drink this early in the day i'm saying we shift the taping of the podcast <laughs> to an evening is what i'm saying <laughs> Whatever you're saying, you know I'm wide open, my friend. So no, I, I don't I, have a problem. I right. don't have a problem. <laughs> no, okay. I'll take. And uh, if I thought that we could get the sound right, uh, we could go on the porch. As you know, I spent a lot of fair amount of time, given the weather here in Georgia, uh, on the front porch. And uh, all right, let's see if we can make it happen. We'll have to. This may tax uh, poor Jeff, our producer. That that's gonna that may tax him unduly trying to get the sound right on the porch. But uh, I'm willing to. I'm willing to take one for the team. So. <laughs> Pierre, and before I forget, it's sitting right in front of me, so I shouldn't have forgotten. But um, if you are in the mood for other pod choices, and really, what else What else are you going to do? You might as well. Uh, Florence Schelling of SC Burn is Craig Custance's guest at the full 60 this week at The Athletic. It's two weeks in a row we've given Craig a plug. I hope, I hope it might be a might be a glass of wine in our future as a result of that. Um, how about Brad Richardson of the Arizona Coyotes? He uh, joins Shane O'Brien and Josh Cooper on Point Break this week. Uh, Brad Hunt, Minnesota Wild defenseman, is Michael Russo's guest on Straight from the Source. And Ryan Reeves, it was a fan favorite, eh? wherever he goes. Uh, he joins Barrett Jackman and Jeremy Rutherford on We Went Blues. Uh, also, if you're listening to podcasts on The Athletic, you should know uh, 
But if you don't, here's the news. We've introduced a comment section for each podcast episode at The Athletic app. So make sure you say hello and let us know how we're doing. And don't forget to rate and subscribe to Two Man Advantage on Apple. And if you click on the show URL, theathletic.com slash two man advantage, you'll get 40% off your subscription. All right, my friend. Well, listen, good work as always, and uh, always a pleasure to to catch up with you. Keep your family safe and healthy, and uh, we'll do it again next week. Right on, right on.